In this episode, I take you on a journey throughout the chapters of my life, from the bustling streets of Detroit to the disciplined life in the Marine Corps, navigating the complexities and love of marriage, embracing the challenges and joys of fatherhood, experiencing the U.S. Army, finding my way to retirement, and serving as a podcaster. Join me as I share antidotes, lessons, and the tapestry of experiences that have shaped my unique story. I've been conducting interviews, so I guess it's my my turn to be interviewed, right? <laughs> I don't want to talk about nothing. You know, my um uh, my upbringing in Detroit was uh it was fun, it was tough, it was exciting, it was exhilarating, it was challenging, it was uh, spiritual, it was mental, it was emotional, it was physical. Any type of word you want to add to it, any type of adjective, anything. Detroit is a city where, you know, you got to be tough to survive. And a lot of us, uh, we didn't survive in Detroit. You know, I was raised in a household. My grandmother was the pillar of our household. My mom was there, dad, uh, multiple cousins, family members, aunts, house full of people. And we was, you know, spread out throughout the city, the west side of Detroit, the east side of Detroit. Um, Again, man, it was it was fun. It was a great time. It was a great time growing up. I was born in 74. So growing up in those 80s and 90s. Particularly the eighties when the crack epidemic hit. Um, we had a lot of drug dealers in our neighborhoods. But minus the that, neighborhood was beautiful at that time. Um, all the grass and everything was manicured, it was beautified, area beautification. You know, all the houses in the neighborhood, uh, everyone worked in the auto plants, the big three, GM, Ford, and Chrysler. And uh every driveway in those houses in the neighborhood was filled with a GM, Ford, Chrysler, Cadillac, all those brands because everyone worked there. And if you don't work at the auto plants, usually worked at a steel steel factory or some type of manufacturing, labor, labor-related. And a lot of the women, they stayed home. It was some women that worked in the auto plants. Uh, my next-door neighbor, his father and his mother, uh, rest in peace, they worked at uh, – at the auto plants. My father worked at the auto plants, retired from there. And my family, uh, we had a lot of workers in our family. Um, but my grandmother, my grandmother was uh, was the pillar of that household. She was the one that set the tone, set the foundation, set the conditions, if you will. She was tough, man. She was, uh, she was a tough lady, but she was very loving. And when I mean loving, she was loving more in words than action. She wasn't a hugger. I don't remember my grandmother hugging a lot. Um, and she just tell you like it is. Hey, go peel some potatoes and don't peel all the, make sure you peel the skin and not the potato. You know, she was one of those types. Uh, and I miss her, man. She passed away in 1995, and I definitely missed her. My grandmother was uh, was a key component in my decision. Um uh, to end up enlisting into the Marine Corps. 
She was tough. Uh, I remember the Thanksgivings and the holidays, just like anybody else's family. The holidays were very special. We will rotate whoever's going to host for that particular holiday. Everyone brings the food, just like everyone does. Those times I, I remember. I cherish those times. Uh, we don't have a lot of that now, especially with us being, you know, military family, constantly moving, constantly moving. We never had an opportunity to pitch our tent for no longer than three years. Uh, so I definitely miss those, and I try to do as much as I can with my wife and children, you know, to try to simulate some of that. But it was a great time. Uh, I started off in the Catholic school. St. Bridget was right, you know, in my old neighborhood. Uh, then I went to Noble Middle School. That was challenging. Uh, ended up going to McKenzie High School, which has since been torn down. That was challenging. You know, we used to get on the bus. I would catch the Wyoming bus all the way to McKenzie High School, which was located in Wyoming and Chicago. And you get on that bus, you never know what you was going to run into. It was always something. And this is not a school bus. This is a city bus. DOT, Department of Transportation. We called it the freight. And you get on that bus, man, ain't no telling what you're going to get into, who you're going to get into it with. It was always something. It was never a safe day. It was never a safe space. And you get on that bus, man, sometimes the cat's getting stomped right in front of you as soon as you get off the bus and, it was just all, it was so much stuff going on during that time. Again, very challenging time. But I wouldn't trade none of it. I wouldn't trade anything for it because it gave me the street smarts, gave me all those things to be successful. Uh, I always say Detroit raised me right, but I didn't grow until I left. But uh, there's a lot of positive spins on Detroit in my upbringing. There's a lot of negative spins on my upbringing. But I think when you go through those things, it kind of, you know, solidifies the person you are in your present state. We all can improve, but I think Detroit played a huge role in uh, the way I act, you know, some good, some bad, you know what I mean? I hold on to a lot of those Detroit-isms, and I don't know if I can let that go. My first job in Detroit, I, uh, I worked at a White Castle in Detroit, and my aunt at the time, she was a district supervisor. And, uh, you know, I've been itching to get a job. I've been trying to get jobs all over the city, skipping school, filling out applications. And my main reason for employment wasn't to, you know, responsibility and all those things in life. My my ultimate goal in life at that time, I wanted a pair of Adidas forms. That's all I cared about, gym shoes. That is the reason why I wanted a job. I ain't responsibility. I don't care about that. I wanted to be fly. I wanted shoes. I wanted sneakers. That's all I wanted back then, right? Still do to this day. Um, but, I, you know, I worked at White Castle. I worked there from two years, from 1991 to 1993. And uh, it was fun. I mean, it was, I, we was getting paid every week. Every Friday we were getting paid. Uh, had a great crew. It was a couple of, couple of folks I didn't like. Uh, we had a manager, Miss Motley. She was tough, man. You know, she was, hey, don't make your food, chit-chat, and clock out. Clock out, then do all that. You only got 30 minutes. Why are you back here for 31 minutes? Do I need to send you home? She was one of those types. She was very, I don't know if she was ever in the military, but she was very military. She was very structured. And she probably was the first person in my life where I was like, okay, 
there's a method to this. There's a reason why she is this way. She is very st- structured, regimented, like I mentioned. Very tough. You know, wasn't a lot of smiling going on. Why is this like, why are the French fries, the, the timer's going off. Why are the French fries still in there? Why are we backed up drive through? What are you doing? She was one of those. And I've always, uh, I was always successful in those type of environments, you know, where set the conditions for the day. Let me know what I need to do. Evaluate me while I'm doing conducting these tasks and let me know what I'm doing to improve. Am I on glide path? What's happening? And, you know, even though she wasn't in the military, it kind of opened my eyes to structure because she talked to me different. She talked to everyone different, but particularly me. It could have been because her and my aunt were tight. You know, my aunt district supervisor, they were tight. So she really, she really had a watchful eye for me. And she told me, she said, you got to do something greater than White Castle. You, you have to do something greater. At that time, I'm like, I'm trying to buy some Jordans. I ain't thinking about nothing. But after a couple of years of working on White Castle, I remember I used to stand in the parking lot. We had parking lot duty. You do parking lot duty clean up the trash in the parking lot, take the trash out. Then you go inside. It, it will rotate between all of us. So you either did parking lot duty. You was either on the register, drive through front counter, side counter. You was on the fish and fry. You was on the grill. You was doing something, but you just rotated. And what I liked about it, everyone didn't do the same thing every day. So you can walk in there thinking you're going to be on the front counter. You cleaning in the parking lot. Or you can go in there, well, I'm cleaning the parking lot. Uh-uh, you're on drive through. So it made us all multifunctional, and I, I enjoyed that piece of it because there was no single point of failure because everyone had to know everything. Now, you made your speed level was probably wasn't as fast as others in certain tasks, but you had to know it. You had to do everything because all it takes is one, one person to be out, sick or whatever, you got to cover down. Um, But I tell you, around 93 started getting the itch i was standing in the parking lot and i used to watch people coming to work people working in auto plants people working in banks all these professional people and i would watch them go through the drive-thru i would watch them go inside get their food and it was just like it was almost like a robotic state but i found it i found something significant about that because i was like okay we provide a service they come in here to pay for that service Hopefully they're happy with the service, but I'm not happy with the service I'm providing. I don't like working here. Yeah, I was making decent money. I was making what three dollars an hour. I think three twenty-five. This is you know back in the nineties. And uh, but I wanted more. You know I wanted more. So I remember one time the summer of ninety-three, my grandma had a long sit down with me, and she said, uh, "You know I need you to really." take some responsibility and need you to step up. I don't want you to do what uh, your other family members have done. Don't stay here in Detroit. Do something different. Do something. Do something different in your life. You know, do something different. Uh, And a day later, a Marine recruiter contacted me. I had already graduated high school and everything. He's yeah, you know, see, so graduated and this and that. What do you think about the Marine Corps? I was like, Psst, I ain't going to fight nobody's wars. He's oh man, we don't fight wars. If if we fight a war, we are gonna fight it with lasers. 
I'm like, hmm. Hmm. He comes to the house. I go to the recruiting station. Oh, man, you look like a Marine. You you should be a Marine. You look like a Marine. And so I remember, um, I remember I didn't have a lot of support in my family that I can remember as it relates to enlisting in the Marine Corps when I decided to enlist. My mother didn't believe I was leaving. My father didn't believe me. The only person I remember being supportive was my grandmother. My grandmother's like, you're going to do well. I can't wait to see you when you graduate. Now, I hadn't even signed my contract yet, but she was like, you're going to do well. And she was my biggest supporter. That's why, you know, I wish she was still here to see my family and how everything turned out, you know. Um, she was my biggest she was my biggest supporter, my biggest ally, my most trusted confidant. I love that woman, man. Really do. November 1993, I'll never forget. I was at the MEPS signing my contract. Signed my contract at the MEPS in uh, Troy, Troy, Michigan. And uh, I was like, man, going to the Marine Corps. I remember it like it was yesterday. I finally enlisted in in the Marine Corps, raised my right hand. It was a cold day. It was was a typical Michigan winter. And I remember coming home and telling my, you know, my grandmother. I don't think she was living with us at the time. I think she had moved. Grandma, I'm going to the Marine Corps. I enlisted. I leave in January, January 1994. I'm leaving, Grandma. She was sad, but she was happy. She said, thank you. She said, God bless. You know, you answer my prayers because I want I want you to leave. You're going to do well. You're going to do well. And uh, I remember telling everybody at White Castle, man, I'm going to the Marine Corps. I leave in January. Man, you ain't going, man. My cousin went to the Navy, man. He he flunked out. You ain't going to make it to the Marine Corps. You're going to be here at White Castle. And there was this one guy named Thomas. I can't remember his name. He was such a prick. He always called me brother. I ain't your freaking brother. You know what I mean? Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Brother, you ain't going to make it. You ain't going to make it in the Marine Corps, man. You you can't make it. And uh, Jan- January 1994, <laughs> I left. And my mother didn't believe it. My father didn't believe it. And when my recruiter walked up to that door, staff sergeant, can't remember his name. He was like, it's time to go. That's when everybody's, oh, you leaving, you leaving? My grandma was the only one that was like, you're going to do well. My number one support was my grandmother. Next thing you know, I'm going to the Marine Corps. So I flew from Detroit to uh Atlanta. First time I ever been on a plane. So I flew from Detroit to Atlanta and uh from Atlanta in the basement of the airport, they had like a Marine Corps liaison where everyone that was east of the Mississippi River, they go to Paris Island, South Carolina for boot camp. And if you're west of it, you go to MCRD San Diego, California. So being Detroit, you know, went to Paris Island. So we in the basement of uh the the whole the hotel the airport in Atlanta, Hatsfield, 
liaison there, you know, they giving us food and all that, talking to us. And there was a female that I knew that I went to high school with. She At that time, she was a corporal. And I seen her. We made eye contact. But, you know, she still had to play, you know, a Marine. And, uh, you know, I didn't know nothing about that professionalism. I was like, yo! She walked over there. She like, look, man, I know we went to high school and all this together, but there's no A-yo. I'm a freaking corporal in the Marine Corps. I said, I advise you to get your S together. This ain't Detroit no more. You about to enter the real deal. And I'm like, man, you were just cool two years ago. What happened? And she was like, it's going to be tough, man. It's going to be challenging. She said, but, it, you know, you got to make it happen. Make it happen. Never forget that. That's the first time I heard someone say, make it happen. You know, at this time, we getting ready to line up and leave to leave from South Car- leave from Atlanta to Paris Island, South Carolina. And it was like a three-hour trip, I think it was, something like that. And I remember she, her and a corporal and some other folks was like, hey, you guys better get some sleep. You better get some sleep because you're going to be up. So, you know, we bus full of, you know, we're like, man, whatever, man. I ain't going to sleep. I get on that bus. It's a three-hour trip to Paris Island, South Carolina. We talking, man, what's the Marine Corps going to be like? What are you going to do with your first paycheck? And, you know, doing all these things, right? And uh, I'm on the bus, right? Remember, three hours of sleep. I'm on the bus, and I'm thinking, thinking, thinking. So finally I go to sleep. I just happened to wake up. I'm thinking, okay, I still got some time left. It's, it felt like I was asleep for like four hours. I wasn't sleep that long. Open up that window, and the first thing I saw, welcome to Paris Island, South Carolina, Marine Corps. And I will tell you, I nearly had a heart attack. I froze because I realized, dude, you ain't in Detroit no more, Cupcake. I'm on that bus and we all, you know, it's just like it's just eerily quiet on this bus. No one's saying nothing. When we started this trip, it was a lot of ah, it was silent. The bus stopped by those yellow footprints, the infamous yellow footprints. The drill instructor walk out. We watch him. He walk out. There's like 9000 drill instructors just waiting like piranhas and we're fresh meat. He walk on the bus. Now he get a bus driver some dap. So I'm like, man, this is this is going to be great. This dude is mad cool. We're going to be good. Once he got done talking to the bus driver, the bus driver gets off the bus and he kind of just smirks. So I'm like, something ain't right. The drill instructor took a deep breath and said, at this time, welcome to Paris Island, South Carolina, Marine Corps Depot. Exit my bus now. When he said the word now, it was so much freaking power. You talk about power in the word. When he said now, he said what he said. He paused now, man. We trying to we running off the bus. We trying to jump through the window, trying to. I mean, we going crazy. We don't know what to freaking do. We get off that bus and it was just K freaking us control chaos, man getting uniforms thrown at us, haircuts, all those administrative tasks, all those things. I mean, it was 13 weeks of mental, physical, 
spiritual, emotional torture. 13 weeks Marine Corps boot camp. I can't even I can't even put into words what that experience was like unless you go through it. It was tough, man. It was tough. Gosh, dog, it was freaking tough. It was freaking tough. And uh, we used to get letters. We used to write letters. Tell you how old, long time ago this was. We would write letters and everything to our families, and we get stuff back. And the drill instructors was constantly on us. You end up learning the Marine about the Marine Corps, the challenges. You're getting challenged. I remember the one time I almost got recycled, which means you got to repeat a certain section over. Uh, swimmer call. I'm not a swimmer guy from freaking Detroit. All I know is concrete and freeways. And uh, we had to jump in. You, you jump in the water. And you're supposed to swim 25 meters on your back. Once you complete that, you get on the diving board with your gear and you do all these things. Right. I was petrified. Still is petrified of the freaking water. The freaking pool is like 18 feet deep, if I remember right. And I remember writing a letter to my grandmother. I said, Grandma, the drill instructor said, if I don't pass swim call, uh, I'm gonna get recycled. And she would, you know, put a word, a prayer in uh, the letter. That following week, I was supposed to to uh, swim call. So I remember we were all standing online. This when all the recruits are standing online. You got X amount on this line. X amount right in front of here. So y'all facing each other and the drill instructor just walking through the middle. It was like, we got two remaining recruits who can't freaking swim. We got one guy from freaking Detroit and I get it why you can't swim. And we had another guy named Primo, Jamaican cat. It was like, we understand why Detroit can't swim, but you're from freaking Jamaica. <coughs> Your boy's making me hoarse. And, uh, he said, this recruit, because you had to say this recruit, this recruit don't know how to swim. Say, I know that. You better freaking swim. Tomorrow's freaking swim call. You better freaking qualify. Or you're going to get freaking recycled. You understand that? Anybody that's been in Marine Corps, you, you understand the way I just you know, enunciated all that stuff. And my grandmother in that letter, she was like, you're going to pass. You're going to pass. You're going to pass. And I ended up passing. Uh, and that was my only challenge, if you will. That's the only time I was challenged to a point where I thought I was going to fail. The scholastic stuff, the academics, the physical, the running, and everything that we had to do, I was good. I was knocked it out. The swim call was my challenging was my challenging piece during boot camp. You know, and also in boot camp, one of the things that got me through it, my faith, communicating with my grandmother and other family members, particularly my grandmother, um, I used to always look forward to going to the cha hall and eating raisin bread and peanut butter. Now, you only had like 0.4 seconds to eat anything, right? But that's what I would look forward to. And I remember we would be cleaning up at night or doing something whenever we had time to socialize with the other recruits. Man, when I graduate, man, I'm going to eat some freaking uh, raisin bread and peanut butter. That That's what got me going. But uh, Marine Corps boot camp, it was a challenging time. And one thing that drove me, uh, when you graduate Marine Corps boot camp, I don't know if they still do it now, you get 10 days of leave. And then once your 10 days of leave is over, you go to Marine combat training, which is at Camp Geiger. I don't know if it's still there. Again, I'm speaking from 1994. 
But when I graduated Marine Corps boot camp, my mother and father drove down from Detroit, picked me up, went home and everything. And there was one, there was two things I want to happen. Right? Two things I want to happen when I got back to Detroit as a U.S. Marine. To visit my grandmother and to go back to that white castle and confront the guy named Thomas who said, I couldn't make it. You'll never do it. You'll scrub. You'll bump. You'll fail. And I did that. So I'm back home. Uh, I probably have about seven days left on leave. Uh, so I put on my uniform. And I'm headed to freaking White Castle, the White Castle I used to work at. I'm looking for one guy, Thomas. So I walk up in there, and they don't recognize me. You know, I got a little muscular and shed a little fur, you know what I mean? Lost some weight and all that. And uh, I'm still in that Marine phase, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and all that, right? Silent assassin, but I'm very, you know, humble. No, I wasn't. I wasn't humble back then. And I walk into the White Castle. So some people's like, hold on, is that DA? That's what he used to call me, DA. Oh, DA. Oh, they come out, they're hugging, giving me dap and all this. And uh, they was like, Thomas. And I was so thankful Thomas was working there that day because I was can't wait to see you. Thomas came out and he looked. Oh, and I looked him, gave him a thousand yard stare. And uh, he just happened to be at the counter. And now he was like, hey, what's going on, man? You know, how you doing? I said, can you take my order? He said, yeah, yeah, sure. What you got? I said, give me a number one with cheese, a large Sprite, large fry. Can you do that? And it just, that, those two years, that the time, because it was never a harmonious relationship between me and him. Again, he was always calling me brother. I ain't your freaking brother. And that last six months I was working there, he always just tried to poke the bear, if he will. And I wanted to put my hands on him so much, but I knew I had a lot riding on my future. I didn't want to jeopardize my future by possibly going to jail because I wanted to put my hands on this dude. But I will tell you, that moment in time was my validation. When I told him my order, made him repeat it and asked him, can he handle that? You're not talking to Damon no more. You're not talking to the guy that worked at White Castle. You're talking to a freaking Marine. You understand? Yeah, I was a freaking Marine. So after uh, my leave ended, I went to uh, Marine Corps combat training, which was located at Camp Geiger, North Carolina, for four weeks. Right after that, after upon that graduation, went to uh, Marine Corps Logistics uh, Base in uh, Albany, Georgia. I called it Albany, but down, the, down there, there's an Albany. You must be from up north. We say Albany down here, calling me a Yankee and all this. And uh, I went there for seven weeks to learn the nuances of logistics, forklift operation, packaging, you know, shipping and receiving, all those things related to supply and logistics. Um, and that was a fun time. That was seven weeks of fun. I, I definitely enjoyed that, being in Albany, being in Georgia. Uh, I had a lot of moments. During that time, I tell you one moment that I, that stands out. Um, it was a flood going on in 1994 in Albany, Georgia. So they had tasked all the Marine Corps to permanent to provide assistance uh, for all the flood victims. And they was like, hey, if you build X amount of sandbags, 
go to the local McDonald's and they give you guys a Big Mac. So me and my friends, we're like, man, I ain't helping these cats dig no sandbags. It ain't my fault the they city is flooded. Again, I'm speaking how I used to think. Of course, now I wouldn't think that way. I was like, I ain't helping these cats, man. So uh, we got dressed up. We was going to the mall, doing all that. And we would just go to the McDonald's. Hey, we helped with the sandbags and all that. Uh, free Big Mac. So we go in there two or three times a day. And you can go to any McDonald's in that Albany area. I think it was like two or three, if I remember right. We just eating Big Macs. And uh, come to find out, my gunnery sergeant found out that me and my roommates, we wasn't providing assistance as we were tasked to do by order. We were supposed to help. But being knucklehead Marines, we was like, I ain't doing that. So he had us all in formation that evening. Now, we got fresh gear on. We had just came from the mall and doing all this stuff. And he had us doing mountain climbers, push-up positions in this muddy water that was, like, right in front of his office. I mean, we were muddy. I had some brand-new Charles Barkley Nikes on from 1994. Um, man, because a uh, Marine snitched on us. And that's that's when I learned about integrity, honor. I knew about this stuff, but this when I saw it, saw those words put into application. When all I had to do was provide assistance as we were tasked to do, provide assistance, do what's being asked of you, do it with honor, do it with integrity, and leave. But, you know, I tried to cheat the system, and I ended up getting a, a muddy outfit, mud on my ear and all that. And, uh, I remember the gunny sergeant saw me and he said, you know, Anderson, he said, you seem like a good dude, man. He said, but if you want to make it in my Marine Corps, you got to change the way you think. Because I was a conceited cat, man. I was from Detroit. You know, I was a Marine. You know, couldn't nobody tell me nothing back then. I had a mouth on me, you know. And he told me, he said, you you, you got to change the way. If you, if you expect to stay in the military, the Marine Corps, you got to change the way you are. And I took that to heart. So my first duty assignment, um, when we were in school's company, they gave us a uh, a dream sheet. Dream sheet, you pick X amount of duty stations, and the Marine Corps would try to satisfy, you know, whatever you picked. Psst, they ain't doing that. So I wanted to go Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I wanted to go to Camp Pendleton, uh, California. And uh, I don't know if I picked Okinawa, Japan. I remember Camp Lejeune and Camp Pendleton. I can't remember if I picked Okinawa. So about a week, a couple weeks later, right before we graduated, they brought us our dream sheets. Everybody, you know, listen up. When I call you, your name, uh, when I call your name, come up and get your, uh, this is where you're going to be stationed at. Anderson. So I get up there, get my sheet. That joker say Yuma, Arizona. What the freak, freak is, is a Yuma? Now, I've heard of Phoenix. I've heard of freaking Scottsdale and Tempe and Tucson and Phoenix. I ain't never heard of freaking Yuma. The only thing I knew about Yuma, it was an old Western back in the day. Yuma, Arizona, what the freak? What is all this going to be about? So I landed in Yuma, Arizona, and I had... Uh, the Marine Corps all green uniform, gabardine wool. I landed in Yuma about 12 a.m. And it had to be at least 7,000 degrees. <laughs> Hot. 
I go check in, and this was on a Friday night. So they put me in a transit barracks and was like, hey, uh, you settle here for the weekend, and then Monday when you start your processing, you uh, move to your room, your permanent room. But you'll be in this room for the weekend. No problem. So I'm walking around base that Saturday morning, and I'm just like, what the freak? Now all my friends from boot camp, all my friends from uh, Marine Corps combat training, all my friends from uh, the school, the logistics school, only one of them accompanied me to Yuma. And I didn't really care for this cat. So pretty much I'm in Yuma by myself, and I'm just walking around. All I see is freaking mountains. It's freaking hot. It's like a vacuum. I'm like in a microwave. I went to get some Burger King and some Godfather's pizza. Came back to that room and I freaking cried. Lord, why am I here in freaking Yuma, Arizona? Why, why, what's in your will? Why, why am I here? What am I trying to get out of this? And I tell you, those four years in Yuma, Arizona, life changing. So I had a great time. I really, uh, in Yuma, Arizona, I, I was wild. I bought an 86 Regal in 1994. I was freaking wild. I mean, we was clubbing. I was a young Marine from Detroit with money. You know what I mean? You fill in the blanks. It was a great time. It was a great time. Um, it was a good time. 1997, I met a young lady who was stationed with me. Uh, we ended up becoming, you know, we was friends. Then we ended up becoming boyfriend and girlfriend. And next thing you know, we were married. We're moving out the barracks. She's a Marine. I'm a Marine. And uh, my life changed so much. My life changed. I'm a, I'm a husband now, you know. How do we make this work? We live off base now. We don't live in the barracks. Her bills, my bills have to become our bills. I'm not used to that. She's not used to that. Oh, by the way, we're getting ready to have a baby. So her bills, my bills, our bills, we got a baby. What I want to do. Now, at this time, you know, I was, what, probably four months away from my honorable discharge. And my whole plan, what I was going to do, I was going to get out, be discharged from the Marine Corps, and go back to Detroit and live in my mother's house. And I remember my wife said, it, girlfriend at the time was like, why don't you just stay here? Let's get married. Just stay here. And uh, <laughs> best decision I ever made in my life. Best decision ever made in my life. So now I'm discharged from the Marine Corps, unemployed, got a baby on the way, and I'm married. My wife's still in the Marine Corps. So we have some in income generating. So I decide, you know what, I need to work. I need to do something. So my first job outside the Marine Corps as a civilian, I worked at a Dole plant in Yuma, Arizona. And now in the military, we used to hour and a half lunch breaks, right? So I get there, and uh, we working. I so I had two things that played critical critical roles in my decision to leave that night. <laughs> so, so we tracked the trailer, we back up. We would take all the crates of asparagus off the truck, unwrap it, unsaran wrap it, do, shrink wrap it, do all that. Take it off the pallets. Put it on the conveyor belt. I will wash the asparagus, all this asparagus, pallets and pallets full of asparagus. Wash it off. 
Put it back on those crates. Re-saran wrap it. Put it back on the truck. This happened for like four or five hours straight. Could not figure out why we're doing this. So I asked the supervisor, hey, don't don't ask no questions. You just hit it work. Put your head down to work. Next thing you know, we go on break. That was strike one because I didn't see the sense in that. Strike one. That was strike one. Strike two. Hey, y'all go on break. Anderson, go on break. They ain't giving me no brief. I didn't know the structure. I didn't know how anything works. So I'm just going off my time in the Marine Corps. I'm used to hour and a half lunches. And gosh, dog, I'm going to take an hour and a half lunch. So I get back on the break room after, you know, taking this hour and a half lunch. I'm sitting there reading the USA Today, eating a sandwich. I'm back there for like 45, 50 minutes. I hear him, where's Anderson? Where's Anderson? I'm like, what the freak, man? He said, hey, dude. He's a Mexican cat. Hey, dude, what are you doing? He said, get, get back on the floor. I'm like, no, lunch is an hour and a half. He said, no, 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 uh, 30 minutes. Now, it's like a 10-hour work shift, 30-minute break, and I think three 10-minute breaks. I'm like, so my break is only 30 minutes? Yeah, get up. Let's go. Let's go. Okay, I'm getting up and going. I packed my lunch up. I folded my paper. I finished my lemonade. I got up. I walked onto the floor, walked onto the floor, to the daggone parking lot, parking lot to my car, key and ignition, vehicle in reverse. I left. I freaking left. And my wife, so she was off that day, and she was like, what are you doing home so early? You know, everything good? I said, yeah. I said, I quit my job. And she <laughs> she just gave me this look like, you did what? I said, yeah, I quit my job. She said, why? She said, what happened? I said, well, first of all, I didn't like this whole asparagus thing. I thought it was stupid. Um, downloading the truck, washing it off, putting it back on the same truck. And, you know, I'm used to hour and a half lunch breaks. I was so immature back then. She's like, so you quit your job. Now, mind you, we only had one income. <sighs> Tough times, man. So then I say, you know what? My passion is gym shoes and sneakers. I'm going to start working at Foot Locker. So I end up, uh, the guy that ran the Foot Locker, his name was Jerry. Cool cat. Southgate. I think the name of the mall was Southgate Mall. Start working at Foot Locker. And, uh, for some reason, I was just like, you know, I wasn't really aggressive. I would kind of just stand there. And he, after a couple of days, he was like, hey, Damon, he said, let's go to lunch, man. So we went to lunch, and he told me to be a bulldog. If you're not a bulldog, I can't have you in the store, you know, because you're not really bringing value. When he said that, that uh, lit a fire in me to the point where I was out selling the people that worked there. I mean, I was all my Marine friends was coming in, buying shoes and that that was a driving force for me. That was a wake up call. Uh, I had two wake up calls. You know, I don't know if Foot Locker still conduct these operations like this. But um, when I first started working there, I had a four digit code, a three digit code or whatever. So whenever I would sell a shoe or any type of item, Foot Locker item, you're supposed to go to the register, punch your code in and then everything that that uh, was purchased would be under your commission. You start making commission because you had a base salary and a commission. You know, I didn't know. So it was a guy named Healy. He said, hey, just give me a code. I punch your stuff in for you, you know. So I'm like, okay. So it was a girl named Sarah, Samantha, something. She pulled me to the side after a couple of days of this, and she was like, look, dude. She said, that's how it got me. What's happening? He's taking all your sales. He said, look at your sheet. 
You're not selling anything because you're giving everything to him. Once I took that power back and started inputting my own code, doing all that, I was untouchable in that store. I was selling. I mean, it's suggestive selling. I was, if you bought some shoes, you was going to buy some socks. You was going to buy a freaking hat. You was going to buy some freaking shorts, wristbands. I didn't care what it was. You was going to freaking buy it. I, I was aggressive. Jerry wanted a bulldog. He wanted a thoroughbred. He freaking got it. Now, around this time, this is uh, my daughter's already born and everything, and I'm only getting one day off a week, which was on a Tuesday. Didn't like that. So the summertime of 1999, something's got to change. You know, I'm still working here. I'm making good money, making real good money, but I'm not happy. You know, brand newly married, daughter's born, only get one day off a week. You know, something got to give. My day off was Tuesday. Tuesday was the only time I was able to spend with my family. But I, shoot, I was freaking tired because I was working 11, 12 hours a day working at Foot Locker. I was tired. Something got to give. Something has to change. Now, summertime of 1999, I decided I wanted to enlist back into the Marine Corps. That was my goal to go back to the Marine Corps. I missed being in the military. So going to the Marine Corps recruiting station, I seen one of my old Marine friends. He was like, hey, man, what are you, where are you getting ready to go? I said, I'm going back to the Marines. He said, no, nah, man, the Army is where it's at. So as Marines, we're taught the Army is trash. All the other branches are garbage. They're subordinate to us. The Marine Corps, we're better than everyone. That's, the, that's, the, that's just the way that you can call it brainwashing, but that's the way they indoctrinate you. And uh, I was like, the Army? He's like, yeah, man. He said, go to the Army recruiter. They got more duty stations, this and that, and a third. So I got to talk, talk to the Army recruiter. And uh, he said, uh, I say, I'm a prior service Marine. I'm not asking for any bonuses. I said, I want to I go back to uh, the military. I said, but first, tell me what the Army can offer. So he's talking about all these duty assignments. And the Army has way more duty assignments than the Marine Corps. Talking about all these assignments and everything. And I told him, I thought I was going to call his bluff. I said, if you can get me Europe, me and my family Europe, I will sign this freaking contract. I think I'm calling this bluff. There's no way this dude is going to get me to Europe. He said, I contact you in 72 hours. Bet. So I go home, tell my wife the whole situation and everything. She's like, okay, let's see what happens. 72 hours later, I get a call. Come to the station. So I get to the station. The guy was like, hey, you wanted Europe? He said, I can't pinpoint where exactly in Europe, but you're going to freaking Europe. You'll find out where in Europe you're going to go when you get the freaking uh, to the maps. So I had to go through the whole maps process, but being a prior service Marine, I didn't have to freaking uh, go to basic training or AIT. Everything just freaking converted over. All I had to do was go to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, for two weeks to get in, you know, inoculated, new uniforms, update all my paperwork, administrative stuff, then I'm off to freaking uh, Europe. Then I found out you're going to freaking Germany. I'm in a freaking U.S. Army about to go to Germany. So now I'm going to freaking Germany. My orders say Rhine Mine Germany. And once I get there, then, you know, I get my uh, official orders to where I'm going to go, what base I'm going to go to in Germany. So I let my wife know, hey, we're going to go to Germany. You know, so she still had to fulfill her Marine Corps contract. Then she still had like five or six months left 
Oh, by the way, with our young child. My daughter wasn't even one. She was like some months old. So I get to Germany, Rhein-Main freaking Germany, which is close to Frankfurt. And uh, Rhein-Main is no longer open. And uh, I remember we were all sitting down there, and it was like, hey, it was a master sergeant, a warrant officer, I think a staff sergeant. So there's a, hey, all you guys sit down, be quiet. In about an hour on this board, this board is empty. In about an hour, we're going to put all your assignments, your name and your duty station, where you're going to go. Check back in this, with this board in an hour. So we all, you know, we go to the little, you know, I think the PX or whatever. So we come back, room full of dudes, men and women. And this was a Friday, right? And uh, so I look at the list, you know, going down, going down, I see Anderson. Anderson, 5-7, ADA, Patriot, hand out Germany. And I thought it said Hanua, not Hanau. So I'm like, what the frick is a Patriot? Oh, I don't yeah. know anything about the Army. I didn't go to basic training. I didn't have to go to the AIT or none of that. Prior service Marine. And I'm freaking, you know, in this freaking Army. What the freak is a Patriot? What is a ADA, ADA? What is all that? So I'm noticing they're calling people. Uh, BK, Schweinfurt. These are the bases in Germany. Schweinfurt. Uh, Mannheim. Wiesbaden, Vilsack, Graf, uh, Wurzburg. They're calling K-Town, Kaiserslautern, calling all these places. So I noticed they're not calling my name. Damon Anderson, I was a specialist. Specialist Damon Anderson. I thought this thing said Hanua, Germany. And that, this story is about to get even better. So I'm like, Hanua. So I noticed all these guys are leaving. They're calling the names. Once they call your name, they call the location, you get on that bus associated with that location. So right now, it was about uh, 1,300. 1,600 came around. I noticed I'm the only dude in there. So I go up to the master sergeant, the warrant officer, and the staff sergeant. and say, hey, gentlemen, uh, you know, I'm Specialist Anderson, and I'm trying to figure out my name hasn't been called for, this, for the bus. Where's the Hanua bus? So these guys are laughing. They called him ass on back. He said, hey, man, say, say that again. So now I'm getting frustrated. I think they're trying to play me. I said, hey, I'm trying to find out where's the bus going to Hanua. You guys haven't called my name. And they said, like, first of all, specialists, you need to go to parade rest and all that. And I'm like, I'm a prior service Marine, you know, just talking junk. So already we, we become enemies already, right? And uh, he said, look here, specialist, go to freaking parade rest. So I go to parade rest. And, uh, he said, your bus left two hours ago, and it's not Hanua. It's Hanau. I'm like, no, that freaking thing says Hanua. They said, troop, be quiet, at ease. And I'm like, okay. It is The name is pronounced Hanau. You missed the freaking bus, so guess what? We're putting you on restriction. You're going to stay in the lodging, in the barracks here. You are not to go to Frankfurt. The only place you can go to is the Chow Hall and the PX. Monday, you'll be going to your assignment. Any questions? I said, no, Master Sergeant. I went to the barracks, and I stayed in this barracks, big old barracks by myself. The only place I can go to was the Chow Hall and the PX because I had a smart freaking mouth, and I missed a freaking bus. But I'm thankful I did that because the unit I was supposed to go to in Hanau was not the unit I wanted to be in 
once I became familiar with Hannah. Now I'm in freaking 5788 Patriot Battalion. Air Defense Artillery, 69th ADA Brigade, Hanau, Germany, 19th Maintenance Company. I'm in a freaking barracks trying to get my wife and my daughter over to Germany. My wife still got to fulfill her contract. So now I got to do all this command sponsorship, do all this freaking paperwork. And we're talking 1999, so this thing is like snail slow. Get the passports, do all those things, right? So I get there in November. November 4th, 1999. And uh, that was a challenging time. I remember arriving there. My staff sergeant was like, hey, you know, we do uh, SWAR rotations. Southwest Asia, they go to that unit that I was in. We go to Saudi Arabia like every year or something like that. He said, you going to Saudi Arabia? I can't, your family, I got it. They in the States or whatever. But uh, you, you going to Saudi Arabia. We'll figure that out when we get back. So they left December of 99. They came back to uh, Germany, rotated back to Germany, April of 2000. So I'm thinking, I'm telling my wife, you know, I got to go to Saudi Arabia. She crying. I'm crying. My daughter just crying because she's a baby. And uh, I kept pushing, pushing it like, hey, my wife is going to get out the brain core. I want to have my wife and my family settle here before all this goes on. So they say, you know what? Let's leave him here. Let's leave Anderson here and uh, let him get his whole family you know, situation you know, figured out and everything is command sponsorship. And by the time we rotate back from Saudi Arabia, his family will be here. That didn't happen. Paperwork was lost. Paperwork this. Oh, you lost the passport. It was so much stuff going on. And finally, my family, I left my family October 23rd, 1999 to join the army and I didn't see them till April of 2000. All this time and space, the first of our many military directed separations, all that time and space was gone. Family finally arrives, get everything taken care of. They arrive in Germany, pick them up. My daughter has no clue who I am. Now I'm feeling some kind of way. I'm feeling like, man, you know, my daughter, you know, it was sad time. Uh, me and my wife, you know, our relationship probably wasn't the best due to the separation from her time still being in the Marine Corps, me and the Army. We're both immature, you know, brand new uh, married folks. I mean, it was, you talk about a struggle bus, we had a struggle plane. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, but Germany was great, you know. I wish I had done more in Germany. Sadly, I don't remember a lot about Germany. You know, a lot of times my wife and my daughter, they would get on these USO tours and go places. And I would just stay in the house. No, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I wish I could change that time back because I did not, I, you know, if I had to dislike any part of my life, it was that time when I was in Germany because I don't remember a lot of it. It was the infancy stage of our marriage. It was the infancy stage of my daughter, the infancy stage of my time in the Army. I don't have a lot of memories about Germany. Uh, I don't. I end up getting promoted to sergeant in Germany. And I was like, okay. Germany, Germany, you know, if I had to take it all back in the way, you know, I kind of, you know, move now, I would do things differently. But that assignment was a very challenging ex assignment because I was just lost as a human. I was, this is me. I just, I was just lost. Um, it was a challenging time, man. 
You know, we have a lot of, and I've interviewed other military uh, members and friends. They always talk about certain duty stations that you just don't remember. Germany, for me, I don't remember a lot. Uh, if I could take, you, you know, you, you always say you wish you could take that time back. You can't, but there's definitely things that I know now I wish I would have, you know, pivoted other ways. You know, but yeah, Hanau, Germany, 1999 to November 2002. And right after that, we got orders to go to Fort Hood, Texas. So we arrived Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, Fort Hood was cool. You know, it was different. We first time in Texas. Didn't know anything about Texas. Uh, we got there. Um, I was in a, the unit I was in for the first year or so was cool. No, it wasn't. Like, I hated it there. Because it's like every day I was challenged about everything. If I, if I took the wrong breath, if I took the wrong step, if I did this, it was, I had a platoon sergeant that was just so, it was a toxic environment. You know, we talk about toxic leadership. It was so toxic. I could have ran a chemical plant. It was toxic. I remember one instance, the division command sergeant major had a, uh, a command sergeant major's detail. So a tasker came down to the, all the units. Hey, unit, you know, you provide X amount of service members soldiers right to support the command sergeant major's detail and it was just area beautification cutting the grass painting doing all those things right dead of summer fort hood texas my allergies are ridiculous so one of the um requirements on that tasker uh in the coordinated instructions going back to my op order days you know for some verbiage in the coordinated instructions service members can't now have allergies suffer from allergies you know they you can't have them uh, being on this mission. So my platoon sergeant at the ch at the time, I'm a young sergeant, E5. He said, hey, we need you know, X amount of soldiers to support Command Sergeant Major's uh, detail. He said, but the requirement, one of the requirements in the coordinated instructions, you can't have allergies. So anybody that has allergies, you know, raise, you know, you can't go. So I'm like, shoot, I don't need to respond to this. I got allergies, right? My platoon sergeant, who's the daddy of the platoon, you should freaking know this. Anderson, Sergeant Anderson, why you ain't raise your hand? I say, well, Staff, I can't, what was his name? Staff Sergeant Samuels. I think he's a Sergeant First Class. Hey, I can't uh, go on this mission because you just stated one of the requirements, you can't have allergies. I suffer from allergies. Oh, you just trying to get out this detail. You just trying to get out the detail. You on it. Okay. Freaking Sergeant First Class tells the E5 to do something. All I do is just move out and execute to best of my ability. So the task we had to show up that Monday to perform, you know, all these duties for the command sergeant major. So I'm out there cutting grass, lining up the grass, like 30 soldiers out there. So my eyes are watering. I'm starting to welt up because I have allergies. Summertime Fort Hood, fresh cut grass, recipe for allergy disaster. Command sergeant major just happens to roll up. He said, hey, troop, sergeant, what's going on? Everything all right? He thinking something family-wise happened to me. I said, no, uh, Sergeant Major, I have uh, allergies. I suffer bad from allergies. He said, no. He said, I, I specifically told them, advised them, instructed them to put in the op order. I don't want anybody out here with allergies. 
Who you work for? Uh, 27th MSB, Toon Sergeant, and Sergeant First Class Nichols. <laughs> I ain't tell, but I sure did snitch. And uh, he said, go get him. So I go back and uh, I knock on this door, and he's like, who is it, you know? So he had to go meet the command sergeant major, and, you know, that ended all that. Fort Hood was was fun, man. It was it was, I had fun there until uh, we got notification that we're getting deployed to Iraq. <sighs> that was a tough one. So now I got to leave my family for a year. This is 2004. I think it was May 2004. One year deployment to Iraq. You hear all the war stories. You don't know if you're coming back, if you're going to be unalived. You know, you didn't know what was going to happen. What was going to happen to the family while you were gone? What was going to happen to your army family while you were there? And they had so many close calls, mortar rounds, you know, going on convoys and all this. It was, uh, you know, it was a very challenging time. I had a good experience in Iraq. I was at, uh, our unit was at Camp Taji, Camp Cook, Iraq. Um, it was just a challenging time. And I'll probably leave it at that. So we rotate back, redeploy back to Fort Hood from Iraq. Now in Iraq, I enlisted to go to Fort Urban, California. So Fort Hood from 2002, 2005, we rotated back from Iraq to Fort Hood. Got my orders to go to Fort Urban, California. California, eh? Man, we got orders to freaking Fort Irwin, California. That's two and a half hours from Vegas, two and a half hours from Los Angeles. Psh, can't wait till we get there. Fort Irwin was the first duty station that I had in the Army where I enjoyed being in the Army. It was a great time. It was, uh, we had fun at Fort Irwin. Uh, man, California was such a magical place. We did a lot of traveling, you know, Vegas, San Diego, Los Angeles. It was a fun time. It was, uh, I, I have nothing bad to say about Fort Irwin for the fact that it takes you forever to get to civilization because you got, once you make that 30 mile trip on Irwin Road, then you got to go to freaking Barstow, which is garbage. Then you got Victorville, then Ontario, then uh, the other cities. But Fort Irwin was fun. I, when I arrived there, initially it was going to be in the warehouse, and they ended up moving me. They had a position for a battalion safety uh, NCO. And I was a sergeant at the time, and this was a staff sergeant position. So uh, I interviewed with the command sergeant major. He said, hey, you good. So my job for the Two years we was at Urban from 05 to 07. So for the two years I was at Fort Urban, I was the battalion safety NCO. 
And my battalion commander, I knew him from Fort Hood. He was the SPO. He was a major in the support operations, and then he ended up getting promoted and becoming battalion commander. So I already knew him, so we already had a relationship because I had to deal with the SPO on a daily basis. So he was like, all I want you to do, Sergeant Anderson, um, is you, I had two warrant officers that worked in my office with me. It was two W-4s who was like at the brink of retirement. They were pilots. They, ha they handled all the air safety issues, and I handled all the ground ground safety issues and uh it was a great relationship i mean it was a big boy autonomous environment our only requirement from our battalion commander we had command the staff every wednesday every wednesday so monday tuesday we would go out to training areas rifle ranges uh anytime they're doing anything training wise or whatever we would go document take pictures put the slides together brief it on wednesday and Thursday and Friday we do Thursday we do our own little you know office thing, our office hours, executive time and all that. And Fridays, my one officers when I first got there, once we started getting you know everything in sync, he said, "What are you doing uh, on Friday?" I said, "Well, I got you know I had issues in Iraq with my foot, so I'm going to get an injection." And he said, "Yeah, just uh," he said, "Can you schedule that every Friday?" So I'm thinking, I'm like, "Chief, trying to set me up." So I'm like, yeah, I can't do it every Friday, Chief. I got a dog. I can't take all them steroids. But he was getting to a point where he didn't want to show up on Fridays. And the other chief was like, I ain't showing up on Fridays. Because the battalion commander already told us his requirements, what he wanted us to do. Hey, why are you coming here on Fridays? So it was Fridays I would be in there by myself, and he would call and say, hey, you in the office? Said, yeah, Chief, you know, working on something. He said, dude, leave. So it got to the point I started picking up, I started you know, listening to the songs they were playing, right? And I will tell you, for about a year, we was only there two years for that last year, I couldn't tell you working on if I worked on Fridays. It was a big boy environment. Again, like I stated, that was the first time in the Army where I enjoyed being in the Army. You know, life was good. I was a, a sergeant. I had made staff sergeant in Fort Irwin. Me and my wife, we earned our associate's degree at Fort Irwin, and everything was honky-dory. We had a great time. And throughout all that enjoyment, I ended up getting orders to freaking Korea. Korea. Whoa. So now it's 2007, February, and I found out my wife was pregnant with our son. Same day we found out we were pregnant. I received orders to go to Korea. Oh, my gosh. How's this all going to work? And so the way it was set up, you have a, uh, a HAP, which is a, uh, I forgot what the acronym is, but basically a HAP in the Army. If you go into an overseas assignment, dependent, restrictive, you can't take your family. You have a return assignment, a guaranteed re return assignment. So our return assignment was Fort Lewis, Washington. So I said, okay, since I'm going to Korea for a year, let's go. You know, we'll go in PCS to Fort Lewis, Washington, do that year in Korea, and I'll return back to Fort Lewis, and we just keep this Anderson train going on. And uh, Korea was, was challenging. Korea was challenging, but I will tell you, 
just to be consistent, Fort Urban was where I first learned, appreciated the Army, had fun in the Army. That one year in Korea from 2007, 2008 was an extension of that. I enjoyed that year. Of course, I enjoyed, you know, being away from my wife and my daughter and soon-to-be son. But uh, Korea was great. You know, Korea was fun. Korea was consistent with Fort Irwin. I enjoyed Fort Irwin was the first duty assignment that I enjoyed being in the Army. It was fulfilling. And Korea was an extension of that. I found joy in Korea. That assignment was great. However, but when I received those orders on the same day, I found out we were pregnant. It was like, wow, we're happy. We're getting ready to have another child. But we're sad because now I got to leave. And I ended up getting to Korea July of 07. My son was born in October. So as soon as I got there, you know, Korea, you know, it's one of them environments where they just constant. The, the tempo is high, high up tempo. And the unit I was in, 602nd uh, ASB, they, uh, they went to the field a lot. They went to the field a lot. And when I got there, a brand new staff sergeant, trying to make his mark for this year. Oh, by the way, I need to put in some leave to go home because my son's born. So now that all you trying to get out the field, you trying to do all this. Minus that particular period where people are requesting and why did I want to go back home to see the birth of my child when the same people had their families in Korea and their families you know, had birth and all that. But I was getting questioned. That was the only time in Korea where I didn't enjoy it. So I ended up flying back to uh, Fort Lewis, witnessing my son being born. And I'm thankful that I was able to watch both of my children being born. Go through everything, get back to Korea. My son was born in October, so I didn't go back to Korea that November. So November of 2007, I didn't rotate back to the States till July 08. Spent all that time, Korea. It was great. It was a family environment. The co-workers, man, it was that I worked in the support operations. That whole that time was was great. I got along with everybody. I had my own room. I mean, it was that was that was a fun. So I had two consecutive great assignments. That freaking uh Fort Irwin and that Korea assignment was great. After that year in Korea was over, I uh went back to Fort Lewis, Washington. And it was additional fun. Fort Lewis, Washington, 593rd. I reported there July of 2008. And uh, just like Fort Irwin, just like Korea, I enjoyed being at Fort Lewis. It was close to Seattle. You know, my son was born there. I mean, life was great. So that's three straight of duty, duty assignments where I enjoyed it. Loved freaking Fort Lewis. Was only there two years. Um, the first year I was in the S3 trying to figure things out, uh, but it was a great it was a great environment. It was a, a family family environment because our our sergeant major, our S3 sergeant major was all about family. Our S3 major Lurch she was all about family. Staff sergeants with me and all that. I mean that that whole time was great. We end up deploying to Kuwait. All the negatives that I went through in Iraq on a deployment, Kuwait was 
a total 180. Kuwait was fun. It was – I had to worry about some of the things we had to worry about in uh, Iraq. Got to visit, you know, uh, Kuwait City, do a lot of things. We in Kuwait, we're trying to figure out, you know, being a recruiter. People want to be drill sergeants. We're recruiters. And I put in the recruiting packet, and everything was approved. So now they sent me a list. They had I don't know if they do it now, but they had a map of the United States. And you pick battalions and, you know, three but three uh, stations within the battalion, so on and so forth. So me being a native Detroiter, I had no desire, did not want to, did not want to go to freaking Detroit. Nothing near. I want to go to Chicago. I want to go to that uh, recruiting station at Times Square, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Miami, Seattle, L.A. Nothing about Michigan. Nothing about Detroit is on this list. So I called a master sergeant at the Recruit the Recruiter. That was the name of RTR, Recruit the Recruiter. And she said, yeah, I'm looking at your packet right now. She said, uh, where are you trying to go? I said, master sergeant, I would love to go to New York City. I want to go to that recruiting station, dead center Times Square. She said, well, I'm looking at your file. You're from Detroit, Michigan, correct? I said, Roger, master sergeant. She said, guess what? That's where you're going. Have a great day. And I'm like. Did y'all not see the other cities on the list? I did not want to go to freaking Detroit. Didn't want to. Didn't want to. And right after that, senior leaders course, that summer of 2010, two weeks after that, recruiting school. And then um, I already knew I was going to Detroit, kicking and screaming, trying to change my assignment. December 2010, I guess we'll pack up. We headed to Detroit to be a U.S. Army recruiter for three years. December 2010, I check into my recruiting station that was located, it's gone now, but Bel Air Recruiting Center in Detroit, right on 8 Mile. I recruited for three years in Detroit. The only thing I enjoyed about being a recruiter, the fact that, you know, I'm back in my hometown, home state. I enjoyed my my wife and my children being, you know, getting being around to see, you know, my upbringing, family and all that. But I would tell you, I enjoyed the interaction with the everyone that ended up enlisting into the army, the young men, the young women, being able to kind of mold and shape their minds, figure out what they want to do in life. Even if I will befriend them even if they had no desire to join the Army. Because if you don't want to join the Army, gosh, dog, you probably know 15 people that do. Lead me to them. You know? And I was very aggressive. I was a future soldier manager. You know, I would pick the the uh, recruits up, the future soldiers up, and we would train Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays. And Fridays we didn't train because we had either company training or station training. And I'll, I'll pick up the East Siders <laughs> Monday and Wednesday and the West Siders Tuesday and Thursday. And we're talking about driving all over the freaking city of Detroit in this van. They called it the FBI van. And that was very taxing. Oh, by the way, you really ain't getting your weekends because you do all that. Saturday, you got a freaking recruiting event. Sunday, you got to get them to the freaking maps to make sure they ship. Sometimes they ship. Sometimes they don't. I had a pretty good record. I had a couple bumps bumps along the way as far as you know people you know not enlisting 
But I think my record, I end up getting a trophy for it, for uh, earning a trophy for having the best feature soldier program uh, in our battalion, in our company. And I'm thinking a battalion. But recruiting, I, again, that's what I enjoyed. I don't necessarily say I enjoyed where I was stationed at because I didn't want to be in Detroit. And I grew up there. I didn't want to be there. But I would tell you the Detroit that I recruited in was not the same one I grew up in. It was different. Even the conversations like with my family members, it was totally different. Uh, I didn't talk to them as Damon. And I'm talking about family members outside of my home. I didn't talk to them as Damon. I don't want to be addressed as Damon. You freaking address me as staff sergeant. You know, just my demeanor. You know, it was fun. You know, we have, you know, I invite family over for dinner and all that. But, you know, I just, you know, if I'm being honest, I really didn't enjoy being back in Detroit. Uh, but I did, you know, did the year there, well, three years there. I ended up making Sergeant First Class, which was great. And uh, that was, a, again, it was a different time. It was that Detroit was different from the, from the one I grew up in. I don't know what, no other way else to say it. Um, but, you know, it was times I had fun. Again, my main thing, motivator, my main Army military motivator was ensuring that these I provided these kids an opportunity to uh, leave Detroit. And I used to get into it with my station commander all the time. You know, if we had a man, a guy, gal coming to the station, and if they had a, a job, a sustaining employment, worked at the plants or business owners or whatever, and they say, hey, you know, I want to enlist. However, I don't want to do active duty. More than likely, we'll put you in the reserves because you already have a job. Because once you graduate basic training AIT, you're coming back to your job or you're coming back to your school. You have something that's that's providing you the functionality that you need to be successful. Now, if a lady or man, man or woman, come to their office, come to my recruiting station, and they talk to me, and, hey, Sarge, I ain't got no job. <coughs> I don't have anything. You're not going reserves. Oh, I want to go reserves. No, you're not going. You're going freaking active duty. Because every, every month or so, you will have this, uh, I won't say quotas, but, hey, you're hey, this station you're on for, 12 contracts, eight of them active duty, four reserves or whatever, whatever. And they was all about their reserve mission. I didn't care about the reserve mission. I've been active duty all my life. Didn't care about it. If I see a young man, 18, 19, whatever, coming to that station, the young woman coming to that station, and I knew their family situation was not, you know, not consistent with growth and, and uh, health and everything, prosperity. No, you're not freaking going to the reserves. Because like I mentioned earlier, you go to the freaking, you enlist for the reserves, you go to boot camp, go to AIT, you're coming back to what? Eating freaking chicken noodles and watching these rats, biggest freaking giraffes run through your living room? No, not happening. You're going freaking active duty. You have an opportunity to go to the Koreas, the Italys, the Germanys, the Californias, the North Carolinas. Why do you want to stay here and do what? You're wasting your time. More importantly, you're wasting my time. You're going freaking active duty, right? So we get into all these, you know, situations with our station commander. Well, you know, we got to have reserve contracts. Didn't care. 
And I tell you, it was been so many times I've had folks later on who's still serving. Hey, appreciate it. Thanks for pushing me to go active duty. I met my husband. I met my wife. I've had my kid. We lived in Italy. We lived in Germany, whatever. But if you had a, if if the army says put these guys in reserves, what if they had a went reserve? You never would experience that. So that's my biggest takeaway from being a recruiter, being able to kind of challenge the system and shape the people that's going into the system, that's enlisting in that system. Because the army eats its own, so you might as well go where you where you want to go. But I was gonna, you was not doing the reserves, not around me, unless you already had a job, a, a, a equitable job where you was making, you know, enough money to support your quality of life, provide you that life support you need. But if it wasn't that, and you was freaking working Burger King or McDonald's or somewhere, no, cat, I don't care what these dudes are saying, you're going freaking active duty. Now, if you poll all of them that actually made it, because some didn't, they will tell you, I'm glad I did it. Glad you did it. And now the next, we get us orders. I'm there for three years. You know, they, hey, you want to convert? You want to be a recruiter, permanent recruiter? No, I don't want to do that. This junk, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of these politics. I'm tired of all that. I had a streak of successful assignments where I enjoyed it. That Detroit assignment, outside of helping, you know, the civilians become, you know, enlisting into the Army, outside of that, didn't I enjoy that assignment at all? But you know what? The Lord blessed us because our next assignment was freaking Okinawa, Japan. <laughs> freaking Okinawa, man. Gosh, dog. Okinawa, Japan. There's nothing, nothing about Okinawa I did not like. Family was with me. I'm on the beach. My office is right by the beach, surrounded by the Pacific Ocean, the Philippine Sea, the East China Sea, all these things. I'm a, two hours from mainland, Korea, two hours away, Thailand, all those within distance. We were there from 2014 to 2017. My daughter graduated high school in Japan. By far, the best duty assignment I ever had, family-wise. By far. My only thing about Okinawa, Japan, I did not like, and now I look back at it, I went on a lot of these missions, a lot of exercises, because our unit supported uh, the Pacific Pathways mission. Units would leave from Seattle to go to Hawaii, Hawaii to Thailand, Thailand to Philippines, and just train. For like 90 days, I think it was. Then it will go back to their home station. So my unit, we were in charge of providing that life support, providing that quality of quality of life, setting up the barracks, making sure the water, all those things you need for the to support the warfighter while they out there conducting all their missions, their exercises, and their operations, food, everything, right? All this sustainment operations, and I volunteer for a lot of those missions. You know, we did missions in mainland Japan, Philippines, Thailand, freaking uh, Australia. And I volunteered to go on a lot of those. And because my track record was great, 
uh, I did everything I could to support the warfighter in a, uh, in a, in a manner that was, that wasn't achieved prior to us getting there. I was voluntold to go on some of those missions. And so those missions on average lasted probably about 60 days. So you figure I was in Japan three and a half years, right? I would probably say, honestly, I only been in Japan probably maybe two years due to all these missions. It was just missions back to back, back to back missions, 50 days here, 60 days here, 50 days here. And I know it was wear and tear on my family, but they had the opportunity to see a lot of Japan. Whenever I was on the mission, we had a lot of opportunity to see Japan. And it was freaking beautiful. Awesome environment. I ended up loving the army again because the whole Detroit recruiting, again, outside of getting those men and women to join, I had a distaste for being. I just, it was a toxic environment. Uh, but I would tell you, being in Japan was great. That was freaking an awesome experience. I would tell you, to, I would take this to my grave. Okinawa was the best assignment for me family-wise. The support was great. The unit I was in was great. I mean, of course, you got a few outliers of people you don't like in your unit. But that those three and a half years in Japan, man, it, it was just, it was a microcosm of, of uh, relief, <laughs> I guess you could say, because everything I went through in Detroit, that was freaking beautiful, man. I loved freaking Okinawa, Japan. Love for us to move back there on a permanent basis. So we did three and a half years. We had to stay an extra time so my daughter can graduate. You know, I end up earning, me and my wife end up earning our bachelor's degree in freaking Okinawa. That was great. But everything came down crashing, and I got my orders to Korea for the second time. And this time, first time I was at Camp Humphreys, this time I'm going to Camp Casey. Camp Casey, South Korea. I arrived there July 2017. Now I'm a promotable sergeant first class just waiting for my name, my sequence number to come up to make master sergeant. And I tell you, uh, that time in Korea, 2017 to 2018, was, was the best time professionally. That's when I really learned you know, the army, if you will. I learned about it in Okinawa, strategic operations and upper echelons, all these things. To me, Korea was the culminating event for everything I experienced in the army. I got there summer, July 17, ended up making master sergeant November of 2017. And the unit I was in, <laughs> The brigade I was in, I was in the field artillery unit, 210th field artillery, uh, 70th BSB. And that unit, we went to the field, on top of the field, because you continue to go. Yeah, boys and girls, this is our field site. Woo! They <coughs> jumped a freaking brick out here. Freaking brick, look at that. Cold, freezing. It's like negative one outside right now. And we're freezing. You gotta love it, right? Six more months of this mess. Freaking freezing. This weather's so cold, it make you smack people you like. You know what I'm saying? 
Not a good look, kid. We'll make it feel like. Get some. People in Korea know. You go to Korea for that year, you're going to spend half of that time or more in the field. Constantly going to the field. It's freaking cold. Who cares? It's freaking hot out. Who cares? It's raining. Who cares? We're going to the field. Because, again, we was only at, my duty station was only 11 miles from the DMZ. And remember, when I was in Korea during that time, that's when it was hot. And I ain't talking about the weather. North Korea was shooting off the missiles. We was there during that time to the point we thought we were going to war. I mean, it was close. But that time, that that year in Korea challenged me like I've never been challenged. Like I said, I made master sergeant. And for the first time in my military career, I felt invincible. I did. I had a great, great freaking, uh, just like in Japan, had a great freaking uh, unit. My battalion commander, my battalion command sergeant major, everyone that worked in our S3 section. I mean, I was empowered. I was enabled. I felt I was on fire. That was the first time in my career where I felt I felt invincible. And I had so much power. I had so much influence. Uh, again, man, it was a it was a great time. I can never. That's why I always say Korea was the best professional situation for me. Especially after I made master sergeant, because it was it was like all these I would go to these meetings, sergeant major meetings and all this. And I felt like I was one of them. They used to say, hey, you got to see at the table. And it was so much respect that I had from all those battalion and brigade command sergeant majors from the brigade battalion commanders and everybody. And I man, I busted my butt in freaking Korea. God, that was a hard freaking assignment. It was tough. We would get to the office. After we do PT, we get to the office about 8.50, and we're going full bull to probably 2,000 that night. And I would get home, and my family, they were in the States because I was on a dependent restrictive tour. Couldn't take my family to where I was at. And uh, I get on the phone late at night, and it's early morning for them. They get ready to go to school and work and everything. And uh, it was challenging. And it got to the point where the only day, honestly, we had off was a Saturday because we worked Monday through Friday. Now, this is if we wasn't in the field. And uh, Saturdays, some people would go to the office. I didn't want to. I didn't go to that office on a Saturday. I said, I need at least a day to myself. So I would go shopping to do whatever. Sunday, I would go to the office for maybe two or three hours just to kind of catch up on stuff because. That type of unit I was in Korea, you had to come in there on your off days or you had to conduct some type of, you know, work, uh, work functions on your off time to be able to catch up. Because if you waited to Monday, if you didn't do anything work related during the weekend and you waited to Monday, you were behind. It was a. Uh, it was a challenging time, man, it really was. But Korea was the best. It, set, it put me in a position why I I, I I didn't think I could fail. No, you guys will be back at work at 13.30 since we had this, this long week movie, I'm sorry, okay? Uh, appreciate all the support that everyone has given me for all these warrior folks that we've been doing. So I, the expectation is to get Master Sergeant Thomas the same respect, courtesy, and everything, right? Because if you don't, I'll come on from Fort Knox, I'm gonna come with you, all right? <laughs> Bottom line. But yeah, just be safe. Remember, what time is the freaking curfew tonight? 
What time do you report till you come? Being early is on time. Being on time is late. Have a great Friday. 13.30, report to your section. God bless you all. I mean, Master Sergeant, Master Sergeant, Master Sergeant. That's all, you know, it was like helping people. I helped the first sergeant, the sergeant majors and all that. I influenced so many. So many influenced me. Uh, mentors, mentees, man, that from a selfish standpoint, that assignment was the best assignment for me. Okinawa was the best assignment for my family. Korea, Camp Casey, 2017, 2018 was the best assignment for me. And I took full advantage of it. And it shaped the way I think. It shaped my actions. It shaped everything about me for the better everything god i was empowered man we made things happen unbelievable things met our suspenses exceeded expectations man it was a freaking awesome time that year outside of japan that was the best time i've ever had in the army that was that was a magical time you know i compare that time I was a master sergeant 2017, 2018, when I was in Korea the first time, 2007, 2008. If I took both of, the, both of those and just, you know, contrasting and compared, you could just tell the maturity in my conversations, the maturity in my actions, the maturity in my growth, my expectations, my discipline was unparalleled in that year in Korea. Man, that was a sight to see. Then I end up <laughs> getting orders to Fort Knox, Kentucky. So I'm at Fort Knox, and the unit I'm in, uh, it was a good time, but most of those guys and gals, they were ready to retire. And I would tell you, I always tell my wife, I'm so thankful that the if I went to another unit like I was in in Korea, to a place like Fort Knox, and I was in that same same type of unit, I probably wouldn't have been retired. Cause I was, I was running, I was running on fumes. I mean, I was running in Korea. And when I got to Fort Knox, there's like, hey, we ain't, we don't do all that here. Hey, Massaron, you know it's thirteen hundred. You can go home if you want. I'm like, what? What do you mean go home? We got stuff to do. Very relaxed environment. Our jobs, our main focus was to train the warfighters to make sure the warfighters executed all their missions. Uh, but, you know, that time I had a career, I had so much responsibility, had so much power, if you will. I know I use that word a lot. And Fort Knox didn't really provide me that or stimulate me the way Korea did, stimulate in a professional sense. It kind of just... I won't say it let me down, but it was the place, you know, there's the place where I realized that, hey, you know, this thing might be coming to an end, you know. Uh, tried to get first sergeant jobs. No one's interviewing. And my wife said, what do you want to do? Do you want to stay and compete for command sergeant major, sergeant major, or do you want to retire? And I had two back-to-back -back knee surgeries. 2019, I had a orthoscopic 2020, I had a full knee replacement, tore my knee up, and I already, already had knee issues. 
But that was the first time I was I want to say about Fort Knox. I have nothing negative to say about Fort Knox. That was the first time in my career where instead of trying to take care of others, make sure your subordinates are good, make sure your peers are good, make sure your seniors are good. That's the first time I made sure I was good. I was in a bad state mentally. I was going to mental health. Um, wondering what I was going to do with my career that I want to continue to serve back-to-back knee surgeries, depression, man, it was uh, everything I experienced in Korea. There's no way I could have, I could have forecasted. I would experience these things in Fort Knox a year later. I was two totally different people. I had lost that energy. I had lost that hunger. I had lost that fight. I had lost that will. And that's when I knew it was, this is, this may be time. And I remember the thing, one one event that led me to led me to believe it's time to retire. And I told some people this. My second knee surgery. Or was it the first one? One of the knee surgeries. I remember laying in bed. Now I'm on, you know, prescriptions and all that. I'm laying in my bed and we have a ceiling fan in our bedroom. And I remember watching the blades on the fan. Right? And I'm now I'm on all this medication. Knee elevated and everything. And I'm watching this fan spin around. And it's like every blade in the fan was a rank in specific events in my military career to include the Marine Corps. Now, I remember watching this fan. It was almost like I was watching a movie spin around. E5, you know, corporal, staff sergeant, sergeant first class, master sergeant, all these things. And I felt the spirit say it is time. And I end up uh, submitting my retirement paperwork. I end up retiring um, 2020. I processed July of 2020, had my retirement ceremony, did all those things right. And I remember once I out processed, everything was done. The lady that was <coughs> helping me, she said, Master Sergeant, you are finished. You're out processed. You are done. And when she said that, all I heard her say, you're done. And I was like, wow. So I grabbed my paperwork, you know, thanked her and everything. And I walked outside and right outside the one stop in process, out process center at Fort Knox. There's a train track, a bridge. And I remember staring at it for probably all of three minutes. And I remember staring at it. It just happened to be a train coming on the track. And when that train passed by, all those cars represented times in the military, similar to the ceiling fan. And as every event I could just see from the time I enlisted in the Marine Corps up until that moment where I was officially out. And I was like, man, I've had a that train represented what, what a great ride I had in the military. Each train car represented a great ride that I had. The good, the bad, the ugly, the fast, the slow, the highs, the lows, the aggression, the anger, the happiness, the smile, the rain, the sleet, the snow. It represented all that. And then when that train finally passed, it was like, it's over. What do I do now? Four years in the Marine Corps, you know. 21 years in the Army. <sighs> Master Sergeant, you are now 
Damon. What do you do now? I retired November 20 and uh, I sunk into a deep, deep depression. And I probably, I, I don't think I, I don't think I dug my way out of it until I started my podcast. Cause you go from constant calling, constant emails. It's just constant doing something. Then all of a sudden it stops. No one's calling. No one's, you know. This thing is people have moved on, man. You're not in the army no more. You know. So it's it's it was challenging, you know. Going to mental health and deep depression. You know. I think a lot of us uh that's why a lot of service members when they retire, the first thing they want to do is seek employment to kind of continue that. I was so burnt out when I retired. I didn't want to work and I had many job offers. But I wanted to do I wanted to do something where I controlled my own uh narrative. Where I wrote my own narrative. Cause so many years, hey, go to PT. Meetings at this time. Do this, do this, do that. And there's always someone controlling the narrative. The commander, the sergeant major, whoever. I want to be able to control my own narrative. I couldn't stand Mondays when I was in the military. And I started doing this podcast. I had a Monday mental combat segment that I don't I don't do anymore. And it was talking about how to function on Mondays. And I had all these things. And I was like, I don't want to do nothing on a Monday. And I don't have to, you know. It's some of those things, you know, even now being retired two years some things I still haven't let go about being in the military. And I don't know if I want to because my identity is wrapped up in that. You talk about almost 25 years, 26 years of service. It's kind of hard to just to let that go. Some things I've let go, but I would tell you the, the beautiful thing that, uh, I was told by my wife, my daughter, and my son. And they, they tell me, I'm I have I'm more fun now. Um I look relaxed. I'm enjoying life. But the biggest thing is that they have fun with me now. I'm more likable. And I think, you know, if I look back in my military career, I probably wasn't the most likable person, especially when I started moving up in ranks. Cuz you know, a lot of times I don't I don't think I was a toxic leader. I know I wasn't a toxic leader, but I, I did things that if I had to look back, I would have kind of changed, changed my rhythm of conversation. I would have changed the temperature, you know, um, and a lot of times, you know, you come home from a hard day of work dealing with all this and you come home and, you know, you just kind of still wired. Um, but I, I'm in a good place now. I am been married over 25 years. My daughter, my son are doing great. Uh, and my daughter, my son, my wife, man, they've been my greatest supporters throughout this. Cause they've been through all this with me. Uh, everything that I have is because of them. They've given me energy, drive, focus, 
motivation. They've given me courage. They've given me fulfillment, laughter, joy, pain. You know, so I'm at the point now I have this podcast. I have my wife and my children. And, and, and that's where I'm happy. I'm I'm very happy. Each day I'm happier. You know, we all have our own stresses and all that, but I'm happy. I'm happy. 